for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I am your host, Aaron Blasey, and this is episode number 99. And on today's episode, we are joined by Matt Ross from the QDMA to talk about how to start up a QDMA co-op. And here we are. It is Monday, January 27th, 2020, and I'm excited to get this work week kicked off with Matt Ross from the QDMA. Today we're going to be talking about starting up QDMA co-ops or cooperatives. And basically what that is, it's basically landowners and hunters who agree to come together to abide by similar deer management guidelines over a larger area. So it's basically taking if you have five acres to try to make that into 500 or 800 or 1,000. And that's all about networking with landowners and getting on the same page and doing the same thing. Co-ops are really cool. Co-ops have been around for a long time. And believe it or not, here in Michigan is one of the biggest co-op states. And we actually get into that. Matt, he actually brings some numbers to the table and and tells Justin and I about the amount of acres that are taken up basically by co-ops in Michigan. And that number is actually greater than there are public land acres in Michigan. It's really cool and fascinating. So co-ops are a really powerful thing. There are some really successful co-ops in Michigan. And uh, I'm glad I got mad on to talk about this. We just scratched the surface with this thing. But we are talking about how to get them started and get them sustained and keep them going and good practices and how to get them started. So with that being said, I'm going to jump over to this interview with Matt. But first, I do want to say thank you for all the support and all the feedback. You guys are really doing a good job. Keep it up. I appreciate it. So here is the interview with Matt Ross from the QDMA. All right, today we have another guest on, and it's actually Matt Ross from the QDMA. Matt, how you doing, man? Hey, Aaron, good. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good, good. It's uh, it's snowing here currently right now in Michigan. It's cold, and uh, getting a little bit of cabin fever, I can tell you that. The season's just, uh, you know, basically all the whitetail seasons are wrapping up here shortly. Yeah, we actually, I'm in New York where you're uh, calling, and... Uh, we had snow overnight, and it's all white outside. looks nice and pretty. Our season's been closed for a while here in the state, um, mid-December, actually, so we're well over a month out from having it closed. But actually, there are seasons still open, not many of them, but I think the latest seasons in the country are generally in the kind of south-central part yeah. of the U.S., and some of them go as late as mid to late February. So it's, you know, for most most part, uh, seasons are closed everywhere. Yep, but for us, it's it's out. So I don't, I don't really want to travel much because I travel all fall. So I think uh, my season's pretty much over with. <laughs> but uh, before we get too far here, Matt, could you do me a favor and just explain to everybody listening who you are and what you do with the QDMA? Sure, yeah, happy to. Um, so my title for uh, working at QDMA, it's a full-time job. I'm the assistant director of conservation. So we have, like any company, we have a bunch of different departments, communications, membership services, um, it, you know, et cetera. And uh, we have a conservation department, and I uh, work in that, in that department. Um, the director of the department is Kip Adams. Um, has been there for uh, a long time. I've been working for QDMA full-time for almost 15 years. Um, prior to, to working uh, with the organization, though, I was a member and a volunteer. Um, you know, I went to school for wildlife and forestry. I was really interested in natural resources, um, mostly because I grew up hunting. You know, I, I, I love deer hunting. I, lo- I, lo- I had a strong passion for being outdoors and for, for deer hunting and wanted to make a career of it. So I went to, to school and tried to learn as much as I possibly could. And um, after getting um, out of school, I actually worked for a private consulting company doing forestry and wildlife management and uh, had heard about this organization, this nonprofit organization that was growing called QDMA. And I joined, uh, became a member. And uh, soon after, actually, 
started a local, what we call branches, but like a local chapter um, or branch in uh, New Hampshire at the time. I was going to graduate school in New Hampshire. And uh, so uh, was a volunteer for years, um, really believed in the, the mission of the organization, you know, spent a lot of time organizing banquets and field days and things like that. And eventually a job opened up and I applied and got it. And here we are almost 15 years later. I've served a couple different roles in, at QEMA in the grassroots um, kind of fundraising membership side uh, at first. And then I w- moved into a program that was doing stuff with uh, land management and then moved my way up to the where I am now, System Director of Conservation. So I oversee a bunch of different programs, some staff that are positioned around the country, one located where you live in Michigan, um, but folks in other places. And I, I work from home, um, as I said, but our office is based out of Georgia and I travel a ton for QDMA. So enjoying right now, uh, kind of a low period of not traveling. It's especially when it's snowy. So yeah, that, that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of it. I mean, we can get into the different programs I cover if you want, but I know that you want to talk about some specific things related to what we provide and what we do. Yeah. I mean, you, you're covering a lot of areas there. You wear a lot of different hats as I, you know, as you explain, I didn't, I didn't realize that. And, uh, you know, there is a luxury though, being able to work from home. So that's pretty cool as well. Yeah. It's, it's a double-edged sword. You know, I, it's <laughs> yeah. great because I have the, uh, the luxury of as of this morning, you know, it snowed a lot. So I was snow blowing at a time when, you know, other people are probably driving through it, but the uh, the other side of it is I'm always at work, and right. uh, because I am so passionate about it, my phone is always on my hip or in my pocket, and I answer them no matter what, you know, calls or emails all the time, even on weekends, you know, there's no getting away from it, which is good, too. But. Yep, for sure. Well, you know, you do wear a lot of hats, but today I want to talk about one of those hats, and that is specifically QDMA cooperatives, so co-ops and starting co-ops. Now, first one right out of the gate, you know, I'm... I'm here in Michigan. I'm in Isabella County. In the county that is next to me, Macosta County, they have a thriving cooperative, um, a co-op. And it's basically the landowners have all all joined together, and it's really grown into something really big. Um, a lot of people don't know what co-ops are. Could you first explain what co-ops are and basically what they can do? Yeah, absolutely. Co- cooperatives, or we'll, I'll just say co-ops from here on out, are... Uh, not a new, you know, uh, kind of technique or thought process. I mean, really what it comes down to at the, at the bare bones is neighbors working together. And you can have a cooperative um, that's related to anything. It can be any species-specific, you know, wildlife focus. So deer co-ops are certainly the most popular, you know, where neighbors work together to manage deer populations. But there are co-ops in this country that are quail or pheasant focused. They might be habitat focused because they want to do something like, you know, prescribed burning. And uh, they they don't have the landscape or the, the footprint to be able to burn enough. But if they work with all their neighbors, they can really affect a larger scale. So anyway, it, it could even be non-wildlife related, but co-ops really what it comes down to is where you might have at least two neighbors because you need two people working together to, to become a cooperative, um, knock on each other's door or agree to work on something together. They don't provide access to each respective participant. Everybody in the terms of a deer co-op, you know, everybody hunts their own land. Nobody has access. It's not like free reign, um, but they agree to a set of principles and say, hey, listen, um, if we all agree to kind of practice the same type of thing, um, we'll have a larger footprint. And that is that is really what a cooperative is. They can be really formal um, and have names and signs. This seems kind of like a regional thing throughout the country um, where you might have some states. Michigan is one of them where um, they get very formalized and you see, you see logos and signs popped up on, on fence posts and they advertise that they're present, or they could be really informal where, you know, it might be literally two or three neighbors and they don't have any formal meetings or anything, but they decide to sit down around a kitchen table prior to the deer season and say, Hey, what are you, uh, what are you thinking for this year? Okay. You know, we'll, we'll agree not to do this and do that and handshake. And then they walk away from each other and they don't talk again for a year. So there's all types of co-ops out there. Um, some states are a little bit 
uh, more prolific, not necessarily even being formal, but they just have a lot more of them than in others. And a lot of that comes down to land ownership patterns. You know, where we both live is uh, highly private, you know, not a lot of public land. Um, land holdings tend to be pretty small. You know, the average person doesn't own, you know, 500 to 1,000 acres. The average landowner in, in a lot of the northern states around the Great Lakes are 40 and 68, you know, acre parcels or smaller. So in those situations, you see more of them in, than in other places. But yeah, co-ops are, they're a great tool to achieve goals faster on a larger landscape. Very cool. And it's been something that I've been thinking about since I've been in high school and I've been out of high school for some time now, quite quite a bit of time. But, you know, it's something that I would like to get our neighbors into. But I'm always gone in the fall with my job and filming and everything. And, and it takes a lot of initiative and a lot of, uh, you know, direction from someone or, you know, leadership. And I would like to be that person, but I just don't feel like I'm around a lot you know, to be able to do that. Is that true? I mean, do you have to have pretty formalized things, you know, things in place for things to move the way you want them to? Well, it helps and it depends on the, you know, the landscape. What it does, what you always do need is you don't have to be super, super formal, but you need somebody that's going to um, be the organizer, you know, push the envelope, actually do it. Um, cause we all get busy, right. You know, like right. we all have different interests and work and family and, uh, you know, uh, other extracurricular activities. So typically one of the, one of the, um, pillar things that are needed in a co-op is at least one, if not like a small committee of people, but at least one person that I like to call like the spark plug, you know, the thing that's going to fire the engine. And that's going to be the person that might actually say, even if it's really informal and you only literally have two or three neighbors that are working together, um, one of those two or three people has to be the one that sends an email or makes a couple calls in, you know, June or July and say, Hey, what are you guys doing two Saturdays from now? Let's meet at, you know, John or Betty's uh, kitchen table. Even in the informal situations, somebody's got to do, I say, quote unquote, the work. Now, you know, it's all what you put into it. Um, you can make it super, um, not laborious, but you can make it really detailed and get a lot, you know, get try to grow the co-op in acreage, um, have meetings, have newsletters, have a Facebook group, you know, and do a lot. And a lot of co-ops do do those things. Um, but it all comes down to that person and how much time they have and the commitment they want to put. Now, I had said to you, Aaron, um, prior to being on this call that, you know, I have both personal and, and uh, professional experience with co-ops where I live in New York. Um, we have a local QDMA uh, branch that I, uh, even though I'm an employee, I volunteer too. Uh, I still do even from my early years. So I go to our local banquet and we do meet meetings and things like that. Um, but the impetus of this local branch uh, really when it was formed about 15, 16 years ago was they wanted to have a lot of co-ops spring up. So we have close to, I don't know, 30 to 40,000 acres in co-ops in about a four county area. I mean, it's made up of several dozen co-ops, but um, so I have a lot of experience uh, seeing some of them come and go. Um, some of them last a long time, including one where I hunt on and uh, you know, I'm that quote unquote spark plug. So I'm the one that usually sends an email at the end of the season say, Hey, hope everybody had a good season. Or right before we do have a new season, I send everybody an email and say, Hey, we're all getting together, you know, a month from now, save the date. So I, I, I do that on my own time because I want to have better hunting personally. So that comes down to, you know, to you or somebody in your neighborhood that wants to put forth that effort, you know, um, it, it, it's like anything in life. Um, you know, the more work you put into it, the better things can be. So it depends on how you prioritize that. If you personally have the time to do it, I would recommend doing it because my hunting has certainly been way enhanced since we have a co-op formed. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot more people will get more enjoyment from it, I, I believe, I would think. Um, you know, to go back just a little bit, you know, when you guys started your co-op from ground zero, what was the best you know, what, how do you basically start it? Like, is it just, you know, let's say it's one guy, me in particular or something that's like, I want to get, 
a co-op started? What is the first couple steps that you need to take to to really get the ball rolling and and not not so much make your don't really make your neighbors mad. You know what I mean? Because it could, yeah. they could they, it could come off as the wrong thing as well. So how do you approach them and how do you get it started? Sure, and yeah, that's a great question. I'll, I'll before I forget um, if somebody's listening to this and they are interested and they don't want to write, you know, anything I say down or they're driving or whatever. Um, if you go to the QDMA website, um, we actually have a link that's specific on QDM co-ops. Um, and if you just go to QDMA.com forward slash co-op, C-O-O-P, there's a resources there, including a video. And one of the videos is how to start a co-op. So don't, don't feel like you need to, you know, write everything I say down, but, I found one of the best ways to get a co-op started is to look, start by looking at a map and, uh, you know, start identifying properties in a general vicinity that are reasonable, realistic, that you can say, all right, if we had this block of land, whether it's between, you know, range roads or um, there might be a creek or river that goes through and say everything west of the creek over to this highway, if we could try to target um, without overshooting the moon, um, a lot of times, depending on that spark plug uh, and how much work they want to put into it, you're talking about the the one in Michigan. Um, there are there are definitely co-ops in my state and your state that are literally hundreds of landowners, and they can grow to five, ten, literally twenty to thirty thousand acres. Um, there's a co-op in Maryland that is like something like thirty thousand acres. Um, so it all depends on how much, I mean, organizing that many people and all of that stuff just is kind of mind boggling, but, um, it all depends on <clears throat> locating and kind of identifying on a map, a target area. And then the first thing that you would do once you, if you're the person that's listening to this and say, I would love a co-op in my area is to have a meeting, um, where as many people that you can get there as possible within that focus area are invited and typically there's a couple of tricks there to kind of help you get the co-op up and going. Um, I always recommend to anybody I talk to about co-ops is there's likely going to be a handful of key landowners within that focal area. So, you know, if you have like a couple square mile or one, you know, one square miles, like 600 acres, uh, kind of, kind of focal area, there might be two or three landowners that own, you know, two thirds of that property or half of that property, you know, the, the larger pieces that are key. If you can get them at least thinking on board um, ahead of time before they even show up to the meeting, you know, pepper them with information, give them some pamphlets on what co-ops are, talk about the benefits, at least have them thinking along those lines so that when they show up, they're not truly coming in blind. That does help um, even more so if you can identify a couple people, even if they aren't the key landowners, um, that are coming to that meeting that are already going to say I'm in that helps even more. And one of my kind of go-tos is when you hold this meeting and you said it, obviously when people are most interested in uh, getting ready for the deer season, you could do it when the deer season ends, like right now, because they're fresh on what the season was like. If they were disappointed, if they weren't, they have that feeling fresh or you'd want to do it kind of when people start getting whitetail on the brain again, you know, towards the mid to the end of the summer where you're just about getting ready to start thinking about scouting and, you know, observing deer from the road and all the stuff that happens that gets people fired up. So those, that's the time of year you want to have the meeting and any pu publication or promotion or advertisement of the meeting in that focal area, you don't want to come across as owning it as saying, listen, I am starting this co-op or this co-op is forming, please come and learn about it. Because it automatically makes that person that gets that flyer or hears about it at the local barbershop like they're an outsider. The way you want to advertise it and the language that you use is you say something like, we're exploring the possibility of starting a co-op. Come and be part of this from the beginning. Because then they feel like they're part of something. If they feel like they're excluded before they even show up, you're going to lose people. So that's a, that's one of the key kind of like hot tips that I give folks is use the language you use is very important. Um, the second tip I, I always say is have a third party, give a presentation about deer management and co-ops there, not you, not the person that's organizing it because then it comes from a very 
um, selfless. If you're, you have some professional presentation being given by somebody at QDMA or your state agency, at least they're coming to hear an, you know, quote unquote expert. If you're their neighbor, they're already going to probably think, well, what's this guy know? He doesn't know more than I do. Right. You know, so have, have a third party there. And then the third thing that I do that I, that is almost my home run in getting a co-op started, um, is when I, when at the end of that meeting, when you get as many people there as possible, I try to pick a, t- you know, pick, pick a, a p- time that, that is uh, convenient for folks. Don't make it inconvenient. You know, if harvest season is happening, don't do it whenever, you know, the farmers are in the fields. Um, sometimes providing a, a meal of, you know, free meal, even there, like a cookout or hot dogs and hamburgers, something like that um, can get, get people there. Um, but don't, don't pick something that's inconvenient, make it accessible to everybody. Um, after the presentation has been given though, I always like to have a printed map of the focus area that I can draw or color on. You can go to your, you know, um, tax assessor's office and get a, uh, like a black and white paper copy map of all the, uh, the focal area and have some highlighters there. And this is kind of my hole in the, you know, uh, hole in one at the end is, I tell the person that's organizing it, that's trying to get the co-op up and going, is when the professional presentation is done, is that's when they stand up and say, hey, listen, thank you so much for that presentation. We learned a lot more about co-ops. I'm the one that organized this thing. Uh, uh, that's, uh, it's obvious I want to be part of this. I would like to get one going. And I'm going to – I have a map here, and I'm going to take a pen or a highlighter, and I'm shading in the property that I hunt on or I own because I would like to get this started. So I'm in, is there anybody else in? And then if you have those like two or three key people that I mentioned earlier that are already saying verbally that they're probably going to do it or they will do it and they stand up and they do it right after you, you might have 80 to 90% of the room be standing there that weren't privy to that. And it's just like peer pressure in high school. You watch that happen. And all of a sudden somebody says, well, if he's willing or she's willing to do it, okay, I'll give it a shot. And all of a sudden it's like dominoes falling and you might have a couple people in the room be cantankerous and say, no, nah, I'm not, I'm going to watch, you know, I'm not doing this, you know, no way. But I bet for the people that show up, you get the majority of them to sign up because once this like community driven uh, thing is happening and you see people signing up or, you know, it doesn't have to be a contract. It's not like you're signing in blood or anything. Just say, all right, you know, those people are doing it and they're trying it. And, and if I was you and I was a person organizing it, I would say, well, we're already up to like, you know, 400 acres or 300 acres. Oh, we're up to, you know, 800 acres or, you know, just like, Oh, Sally's in. I just say, and you hear that number growing all of a sudden it's like, wow, we can really make a difference in this area. And that's a, that's a key thing to try. What I'm hearing is like, you know, I'm from New York as well, Matt, and um, unfortunately, I, you and I could probably have a much longer conversation about the mentality of, of a lot of deer hunters up there, but I, I always heard this like, oh, it's only a two-year-old. If I don't shoot it, the neighbor will. Like A co-op is getting like-minded people together to solve issues like that. Like You're in a room and you can actually understand, okay, who's the guy saying that and who's the guy saying, no, let's grow four-year-olds, and then kind of part the seas and then team up with the people that want to work and just kind of try to shift that paradigm or that mindset into more of a management. Right. I just hearing you say that it was like a, I mean, it's a light bulb in my head because I've heard that so many times. Like if I don't shoot them, the neighbor will, or, you know, whatever excuse they have, but it's like, come on. And that's, that's the answer to that statement of if I don't shoot it, the neighbor will, it also provides a platform for education because there's going, you don't have to have like a complete blanket contiguous chunk of land. That's all, um, all signed up. Like you can have a checkerboard pattern where some inside the circle are out. You know what I mean? Where they might say yep. you have non-participants, but you know what? Those people are going to benefit from it. You, some it depends. It's glass half, you know, glass is half full versus half empty. Um, some yep, people might sure. look at that and say, well, that's not fair. Um, you know, that guy's going to benefit from all of our hard work. And I look at it and I say, you know what, he is going to benefit or she is going to benefit from it. And I'm not going to let him forget it. And every year we're going to, we're going to have our meeting and I'm going to invite him again and say, Hey, listen, you really should be part of this. 
And at some point that person's going to see a great deer or shoot a great deer. And there are going to be rare samples or examples where somebody might just hold out forever and never join you. But right. it doesn't really matter because they're going to see the difference. They may not be on paper or formally joining you, but they know that it's happening. So every yeah. year we have people around us where we send an invite and say, Hey, and in one case, uh, I know some folks that are like, you know, co-op, uh, not managers, but the guy that's like doing all the organizing will even send their harvest stats or even trail camera pictures to people and say, Hey, here's what we're shooting. And it just yeah. continually puts a seed in their mind of, uh, this is what we're doing. And if they never participate formally, some of them will start changing their mind, even internally and privately, and they'll start passing up young bucks because they know why would I why would I shoot a young deer if everybody else around me is passing them up and I have a chance at a real good deer? Now, yeah, everybody has that neighbor, and you're gonna have some neighbors that just do whatever they want, and they'll they'll hunt you know in a different way than you do, and they will shoot yearling bucks and all that stuff, but. That doesn't matter. Don't focus on that. Focus on all the positive stuff. And Justin, right. I mean, being New Yorkers, I can tell you, <laughs> you know, automatically, we New York is getting better. Uh, I One of the things I'm doing right now this time of year is our staff writes something called the Whitetail Report, and it comes out in a couple weeks. It's our kind of annual status of the deer herd. And, uh, you know, we, we track how many yearling bucks, one-year-old bucks are in the harvest. And um, I'll just, without releasing the exact number, I can tell you, you're going to see a, a record-breaking number this year. It's never been hit before in the country. But, and New York is getting better, but it still leads the country in a couple categories. One is there's still a lot of healing buckshot in New York State. Yeah. But where I hunt, I killed a four-year-old buck this year with my bow. Even oh, awesome. though I live in New York, you know, I hunt on a place where I can kill a three-year-old almost every year. And a lot of the co-op participants do. And that's what we, we aim to shoot is three and older because it is New York and it's hard to get them to older age class. But I personally try to hold out for older. It's been some time since I've killed a deer, but I, I killed a four-year-old buck with my bow. I'm, I'm ecstatic still. Early November, you know, it was awesome. And how many New Yorkers can say that? Very few. Um, right. And I, the thing – and I, I know where you're hunting at. I mean, and there's there's really good genetics down in your county, so it's uh, – it's one of those things like you got to get those like-minded people on board and establish goals and figure out, you know, who shares that goal and who doesn't. And I mean, there's, there's going to come a time where that one person who wants to say no is go is not going to have an argument. You know, they're not going to have a, a dog in the fight because, yeah. you know, they, like you said, they, they might shoot a 150 or, you know, depending, you know, however you want to break it down, they might shoot a, a four-year-old. And at that time he's going to be ecstatic and it's going to be like, a slap in the face like yes it you did the work but you also just turned somebody else hopefully to join you know to join the crew so they're, they're, it's tough the to, are like this hot they're, they're like a hot thing um we're tracking it nationally we we estimate somewhere to between 28 and 30 million acres in the country and co-ops right now but there are some standout states um where aaron is michigan is one of those states. Texas is another one. Um, we yeah. have, I, I kind of alluded to it before, but we have a staff member in some states that that's their job. In Michigan, uh, there's a young woman. Her name is Morgan Jennings. Um, she's actually a full-time employee with MUCC, the Michigan United Conservation Clubs, but they pay part of her salary. Michigan DNR pays part of her salary. Pheasants Forever pays part of her salary because there are actually a bunch of pheasant co-ops and QDMA does, but that's her job is she's a co-op person. She does that all over the state. And I got an estimate from all of our regional co-op specialists here at the end of 2019, and she reported just over 350,000 acres in co-ops in the state wow. of Michigan, Holy cow. which is now higher than the number of acres in state game areas, meaning there is actually more land. I mean, most of the state of Michigan is privately owned in the Lower Peninsula anyway, but there's actually more land in formalized co-ops than there are in public hunting state game areas. And with the touch of a button, she can email the leaders of all those co-ops and communicate something, um, you know, chronic wasting disease or 
bovine tuberculosis are two really bad diseases that are in the state of Michigan. If the state has to change a regulation that's regarding either one of those, she can communicate with thousands of hunters with an email and say, hey, please start doing this. Or if something happens and they want to start doing some kind of data collection, she can say, hey, can you all start turning in samples of hair or blood uh, on does that you shoot or, you know, whatever. The control over that type of number of acres and number of hunters is just amazing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's M- Michigan is one of those states that you drive around and you see QDMA logos on signs that say the word co-op everywhere. It's almost like QDMA owns you know, a third of the lower peninsula, but we don't. I mean, it's just all community-based volunteer that neighbors working together. That's what it is. People that knock on each other's door and say, hey, let's uh, let's work together, which I, you know, that's what this build country was built on, right? I mean, it's kind of amazing. Deer bringing that kind of neighborhood effort together is amazing. Right. Now, does it matter how much land you have access or own or hunt on to to get one started? No, not at all. I mean, I, I know people that are in co-ops. There's a co-op here in our state that's close to 5,000 acres, but it's well over 100 landowners in it, and there are people in there that have 5-acre and 10-acre parcels. Um, you know, even better, if you're the person that owns 2.5 or 5 acres and you're the one that got the 5,000-acre uh, co-op up and going – isn't your hunting better because of oh, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah, you don't have to own, there's no magic number. Obviously the larger the acreage, the bigger the benefit, um, in the general community, but you know, at a, at a scale of what the average is, I think our national average is about 1500 acres is what the average co-op is in the country. I don't know what it is in Michigan. I'm guessing it's probably not far from that. It might be a little bit smaller. Um, you know, it, it, so you don't have to, and I'll give you an example. I hunt on two, there's two, actually three places that I hunt primarily here in New York. Uh, I can go behind my house. I have seven acres and there's public land behind there. There's a, there's a county forest and behind that is a public accessible nature conservancy land. So I can literally walk out my back door and hunt. I mostly will drive about 15 to 20 minutes to other places because there's more deer there. Uh, where I live, it's it's in our northern zone, and it's very uh, forested, getting up into kind of the Adirondack Mountains, and deer density is lower. And I don't have the opportunity to shoot as many deer here because the state regulates it because I'm in a in a zone where you can't shoot that many deer. But I can drive 20 minutes away into our southern zone, and I have access to two two uh, farms. One of them is a brother-in-law's farm that we do work with some neighbors. And one of them is our co-op, and I don't own a stitch of land in it. It's my best friend, and I met him through the QDMA. And the reason that co-op started was we started talking at banquets afterwards, and I he invited me to hunt on his place because we were hitting it off and becoming really friendly, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And uh, I said, hey, why don't you work with your neighbors? Because he just was situated in a place that had a bunch of, of farms around him. And his comment to me at that point was, they'll never do it. You know, there's no way they're not going to want it. We've been doing this for years. I just, they wouldn't do it. And what that was, was an artifact of his father and his grandfather, basically not liking their neighbors. And it was just kind of ingrained in them that, nah, they are not going to do it. And I said, will you give me the chance? I don't own any of this. You know, I said, but if I invite them to your kitchen and we sit down with these three farms and you guys and your two other neighbors and just give me a shot to like give them a pitch and he said there's not you could try he goes well, there's no way he goes I, I you know i'll let them in my house i'll let them come to my kitchen table but <laughs> i don't think they're gonna want to do it and lo and behold because i was not him i was a third party i you know i gave a very uh detailed presentation that was full of deer biology and all kinds of other you know artifacts of the benefits and they signed in, and they said, "All right, let's give it a shot." And we're going into our eleventh or twelfth season this year. Wow! And uh, you know, awesome. not without some heartache and some headaches. I mean, we've had some tons of like, uh, we we lost a property at one point, we gained some acres at one point. You know, we've had drama here and there, but I mean, it's uh, I learned in school, going to school for wildlife biology. You know, 
the the managing the wildlife is the easy part. It's managing people that's the complicated part. That <laughs> yeah. is that is true. Yeah, uh, you know, you that know, is an absolute true statement. So when you when you get one established, let's say, I mean, doesn't matter how many people or or what it is. Let's just say there's a a co-op established and you're part of it. What are some good goals to set? you know, right off the bat? I mean, I know that's kind of a broad question, but like, what are your like maybe top three to five goals that you really provide or think that everyone, you know, should start with? I will answer what I, you know, what I think and what I probably most commonly say, but it's uh, to be clear, it's not up to me and it's not up to the person giving the presentation. It is a hundred percent up to the participants. And and I say that when I give a presentation about starting a co-op, like I said, co-ops can be around pheasants. There are literally pheasant co-ops in the state of Michigan. There's a bunch of them. So if the people in the room get together and they're most angry or most passionate or whatever about you know, wanting to see more older bucks in the herd, then one of the goals has to be don't shoot young bucks and coming up with some rule about that. But just as common, I've seen co-ops start because trespassing or poaching is an issue. They're happy with the deer hunting, but they're really fed up with people road hunting or trespassing or something. So a co-op for, might, goal might be um, to form some kind of chain, uh, you know, phone list, uh, cell phone phone list where they can text each other and be better communicators with each other when somebody shoots. And uh, we literally have a couple co-ops in our area in new york this year that literally got tickets written for folks because somebody heard a gunshot or saw somebody creeping down the road and they reported the vehicle and then all of a sudden they posted it on the co-op facebook group page and it went you know relatively speaking viral it, it got posted and shared and all of a sudden they figured out who car whose car it was and the person got visited by the conservation officer so um the goals really come down to the people in the room. So after you do that magic where you have the highlighter and the map, the people that are signed up, the ones that say they want to do it, the very next step is to say, what do you guys have the biggest beef with? What do you want to see change? What do you, what do you want to see better? And have a very open brainstorming session, like a very open discussion of what can we do? And if, you know, it's not going to be unilateral, uh, two thirds of the room are probably going to want one thing, Half's going to want another, you know, you're going to have overlapping goals, but that's what should be identified. Now, typically on a deer herd side, generally co-ops are formed because they want to see more older bucks. That's the most common. And what I tell people, I gave a presentation at a national conference about co-ops a couple of years ago. Um, the reality is dangling a carrot in front of a rabbit works. And the same thing with deer hunters. If larger antlers make people do something, uh, you know, meet each other, talk to each other, um, shoot more does, that's a big one. A lot of state agencies want to see a higher – your state, Aaron, is one of them. Michigan is, uh, you know, I hate to say it, but in the bottom, uh, atrocious with the doe harvest in areas where they need it. You guys need to shoot a lot of, a lot of deer in places. And uh, a lot of hunters generally just don't do it. And if the carrot dangling in front of the deer hunters to shoot more does is to have bigger antlers, dangle that carrot. You know what I mean? Just say, hey, listen, if you do this, these are the things that are going to be better. So generally on a deer deer side, it's see older bucks, um, you know, maybe obviously shoot them, but being able to see a, a higher representation of older bucks in the deer herd Um would be one reduced deer density. A lot of times you'll have farmers come come to co-op meetings, even if they don't hunt, but they come because they have deer uh, damage issues. And if you can get them to show up at a meeting and say, Hey, listen, we're going to rally the, the hunters in the area to shoot more deer. They'll come and they'll sign up their hundred acres or 500 acres or a thousand acres and say, listen, if you guys start shooting more does around here, I'm in, you know, that's, that's right. another one. That's a, that's a big one. Yep. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff that falls under that. You know, and I know we're we're crunched on time here. We're we're coming up to the end, but I, I do want to sneak this last question in here, possibly. And you know, a lot of people they probably think like, how long should a landowner or co-op member commit for? You know, is there a set time? Like, you know, Rome wasn't built overnight, so it's like, is there you know a certain like two to three years you should commit for, or a year, or does it really matter? 
Uh, yeah, it does matter. Uh, what I guess, it, and it depends on the goals. Obviously, if you're trying to see an increase in uh, older bucks, you got to give them time to get get there. Um, or if you want to see a reduction in deer density, you got to give give a couple seasons of effort because generally it takes the hunters a couple years to kind of build up the confidence, I guess, in the system or the the need. And I'll give you an example. Um, so to answer your question, I'd say give it a minimum three years. You know, if you're if you're quote unquote signing up, say let's give it three seasons and see what we can do. And after three seasons, if your goal is to see older bucks, and all you do is get a bunch of people to pass up yearlings, you're going to see older bucks. Generally, the second and third season, people are incredibly happy. Satisfaction levels are like way up, um, and that's actually one really cool research project out of Michigan as well. Um, a project out of Michigan State, um, Aaron, they looked at satisfaction levels of hunters and co-ops were like three times the rate of hunters on, on land not in co-ops. Really? So people are just much more – yeah, I mean, statistically shown, I think 70 to 80% satisfied versus like 30 to 40% in general with their deer hunting. So the state, Michigan DNR, you know, took note of that and is why they pay part of the salary in a co-op specialist because hunters are happier in co-ops. Um, anyway, so I give it at least three years on, on the buck side and on the doe side, it still takes a couple seasons and I'll, I'll give you an example. So we had to shoot a lot of does on the co-op that I started. One of the farms signed up purely because they want to see deer density uh, dropped. And the first season I told the guys they needed to kill um, 20 to 30 does, and we only killed about 14. And this was on like uh, 1,600, 1,700 acres, three farms, about 500 acres apiece generally. And uh, we, we only killed 14. The second season, I said, guys, you didn't do as good of a job. We needed to kill more. So we got up to about 20 to 25 the second year. Um, I said, all right, well, there's still a lot of deer based on data I was collecting. Let's do it a third season. And then the third season, they did it. And then we saw started seeing a difference after that that third year of actually shooting some does and we actually started cutting some trees down in a like a forestry management program because i didn't want to start forest like forest management until we reduced the number of deer because the number of deer out there was so high that i was fearful that if we started cutting trees the deer would just eat every little sapling that came up so it was timed very intentionally so yeah you got to give it a couple seasons um, at a minimum three, I would say, to, to yeah. kind of dedicate yourself to. From a biological standpoint, even when it comes to like shooting your does, you know, um, genetically and biologically, your younger does are the most genetically superior. If you think about the way bucks compete for breeding rights, those more dominant, more mature, like older bucks that you're seeing traits in that you want passed on, those are, those are the ones are going to breed first. And those are the ones that are going to get those first hot does. So those fawns are born first. And now that fawn may not be a buck fawn, it might be a doe fawn, but therefore it's the youngest. So if you can identify, just like you do with bucks, identify those older does, take them out, you know, when you've established a number to shoot, do your best to focus on those older does. And just keep in mind, it's not something you see a result of. It's not like if then so this, but it you have to give those genetics time to, to show you what you've done. And that's not going to happen without the time to let them grow old enough to show you that and the nutrition to, to maximize that genetic potential. So it's, there's a lot more in it than just opinions of people, but as long as everyone understands the same goal, like just, just give it a chance, give it some time and, and know what you're committing to long-term. Yeah. The nutrition thing that you hit on at the end is really true. Um, yeah. There's a really cool research where they took deer from parts of one state that were really in a part of the state that was not very uh, productive. So, you know, poor soils, not a lot of uh, nutrition in that area. And they yep. they took a doe from there and brought her to a place that had a lot of good food or actually offspring from her, her fawn. And they raised that deer on really, really high high nutrition food. And you would have thought that that deer would show its potential. Well, that actually didn't happen. It took three generations. So that yeah. fawn had, gave birth to another fawn, and then that fawn gave birth to another fawn. And it wasn't until the third generation of being fed really good food that showed 
where deer started actually meeting their potential nutrition. Okay. So there's like this lag effect um, from all of that. Yep. Uh, and older does are actually, they're not genetically different, but they are better mothers. That's one of the other things too. If you're trying to reduce deer density, if you could try, it's very difficult, almost impossible to figure out which does are the oldest. You, you know, yeah. they don't really, they're not like bucks, not like a larger doe is necessarily an older doe, but the ones that are older are the best mothers. And if you remove a higher percentage of older does, you're more likely to reduce deer density quicker because the best mothers are then taking off. And the ones that are out there, I think what Justin yep. was saying is they're more likely to have, instead of twins, they might have singles. Or if they do have twins, one of them might survive and one of them might not because they're not the best moms yet. They haven't learned yet. So that that's all part of the process. And we're kind of yeah, going absolutely. down a a biological rabbit hole. Yeah, that's, that's, that's <laughs> well, a different conversation. Well, well, you did spark one thing I, I do want to ask before we do wrap this up, and we will wrap it up after this one, I promise. But, And this is something I want to do on my farm as well because I'm trying to figure out what the deer density is on it, and I've been trying to do it for the last three years. So what is a practice that any you know landowner or hunter out there you know, hunting a piece of property, what is some good practices to be able to figure out how many does and deer you have on your property and, you know, how to come up with that number and how many does you do need to shoot? Yeah, there's a couple really good techniques. Anybody can do them. Um, I'll plug our website again. And if you go on the QDMA.com and just type in my name into like the search engine there, you'll probably see some of the articles I wrote. I've written three or four on exactly what we're talking about, like how to know how many, how many does to kill, uh, when you kill too many. I actually put a uh, worksheet up where you can actually fill some stuff out and it's got hyperlinks and it tells you, you know, when you need to increase or decrease your doe harvest. So try to try to find that on there. But the three easiest ways to do it are either a baited trail camera survey. Now, where we both live, uh, Aaron, we can't because we live in states that don't allow baiting right. uh, currently. I know there's some stuff going on in Michigan right now as we speak, but yep. <laughs> I can't. I can't put bait out and I can't put a camera on it. So uh, you can do camera surveys that are unbaited, but scientifically they have not been kind of um, proven yet to show good numbers. So I don't do that because I can't bait and I don't feel like I can get good data off of just putting a camera out. So the other ways that I do it, uh, if you can bait, I'd say a beta camera survey is the way to go. It's, it's relatively easy. You do it at the end of the summer and you can get a deer density estimate and some other things from it. Um, I instead will in the spring. So, you know, usually around late March, mid April, that time when the snow's off the ground up here, I will go out and do a um, pellet count browse impact survey. Those are the other two methods. And I do them every year. Well, every year I have these transects. So I basically pick a line in the woods and I walk that same line every year. And uh, every uh, hundred feet I stop and basically count deer crap uh, in, a, in a four foot circle. And every other year, I do the same transects, and in addition to doing the deer pellet count survey, I assess how how hard the deer are browsing the, the vegetation around, and I chart that over time. And uh, it's basically a couple hours of walking, and I'm out there shed hunting that time of year anyway, so I use it as an excuse to go shed hunting, and you can use that technique to assess deer density as well. Um, those are ways that I, I do that here in New York. <laughs> Um, but I would recommend there's a bunch of different things and resources on QDMA's website you can learn that learn that from. And actually, in, in Michigan, Aaron, um, the the MUCC QDMA employee that I mentioned earlier, she holds workshops on how to do some of that stuff. Very cool. Because I, I what I'm going to do is I'm going to even reach out to her, or I'm going to put I'm definitely going to put some links into the show notes for all this stuff as well for people to be able to go to QDMA and find some of these articles. So. I mean, I, I know we got to wrap it up right now. We're, we're up on time here, but we didn't, I mean, we got to a lot of questions, but not uh, all of them. And maybe we can do this again just to kind of, you know, keep going with this. And I might actually reach out to our listeners and ask, you know, if they're interested in a co-op, what, what they want to know as well. And may, we might do a Q&A on that. So that might be something in the future we do. But uh, I, I do have to say thank you for coming on and doing this. And uh, I really appreciate you doing it. Yeah, my pleasure, Aaron, Justin. I really, you know, enjoyed 
enjoyed the time speaking with you. If you guys ever need anything else, you know, let me or QDMA know. And kind of a last plug before we have to bail is, you know, I'll encourage folks to go to QDMA's website if you're interested in co-ops and just look at It's under the conserve menu. You'll see a thing on co-ops. You'll probably get a lot of questions answered right there. Um, I mentioned earlier, we do have actually full-time employees that do this as a living for free. If you live in Alabama, Missouri, Michigan, some other places, you can contact our co-op specialist and they can come help. They'll be the person that gives your presentation. So you got to organize it. You get somebody, you know, get a bunch of your neighbors together, but they will show up and uh, reach out to them. If you guys want to do a part two or a Q&A, um, either I can be on there, which I'm happy to do, or you could reach out to some of our regional folks and talk about their successes and what they do because they're that's what they do and they're, they're really good at it. And uh, lastly, if you're a deer hunter uh, and you're not a member of QDMA, I really encourage everybody to join. Uh, that's kind of how I started my journey. I became a member. It's a great magazine. I get it. Um, but for like not much money, it's $35 a year. You're part of this really great movement of promoting good deer management and healthy deer. And uh, I, I'm super passionate about it and have been for a long time before I was an employee. So it's coming from the heart. So I, I hope you guys are QDMA members and your listeners all become uh, one too. Awesome. Yeah, and I'll put a link to, to that stuff as well to become a member in the show notes, and, and hopefully we can get some people on board there. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. And, uh, again, I greatly appreciate you coming on and doing this. And, uh, yeah, we'll stay in touch and maybe be able to do this again. Perfect. And there it is. I, you know, I want to thank Matt for coming on and doing this. And this won't be the last one we do one with Matt. He's a wealth of knowledge. He's got a lot of, a lot of data that backs up his uh, facts and his, his philosophies. So it's pretty cool to have him on here and, and uh, really get into the weeds with this stuff. So we're gonna get him back on. And we're gonna talk about some more stuff with co-ops and just herd management in general. So I appreciate you guys again supporting the podcast. Don't forget. Go over to uh, wherever you listen to the podcast, leave some feedback, leave a five-star rating. It's greatly appreciated. So thanks again, guys, and we will see you on the next podcast.